having just finished 1 Corinthians, we are going to sail right on through to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the second surviving letter to the Corinthians. There's at least one other one that has disappeared. Both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians appear to be in response to a letter. The notes that I have in this Bible program indicate that 2 Corinthians was written about a year after 1 Corinthians. And remember in 1 Corinthians, the problem was that the Corinthian church was overcome with hubris. You had people that had gifts of the Spirit and somehow thought that made them hot shots. And they were flaunting the gifts that they had as a means of pride. They were doing some other weird stuff. And so Paul upbraided them. In that letter, there were some questions that he had been asked and he gave answers to. And as we went through those, you sort of had to speculate what the question was that he was answering. And there's some of that going on in 2 Corinthians also. I read through the entire thing just whoosh last night, just to sort of get the sweep of it. Because mostly when we study things, we do it a chapter or a verse at a time, and it's sort of nice to step back and crunch through the whole thing. And there's sort of two things going on. One is there is somebody or some buddies who have gone through the Corinthian church in much the same way as Galatians. Paul planted the church in Galatia, and some folks from Jerusalem of the circumcision party came through after him and were convincing the Galatians that in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised. So the letter to the Galatians was addressing that particular problem. Well, there's something else going on here, the same character. Circumcision is not a question here. That's not the question. But one of the questions seems to be, gee, Paul seems kind of accident-prone. Do you think he's really an apostle? When I say accident-prone, you know, he gets thrown out of town, he gets stoned, he gets beaten, he gets, you know, all sorts of stuff. So one of the things that seems to be going on is somebody has questioned, are you sure he's really an apostle? That, that kind of thing. Some questions about the New Covenant, and they very much echo the book of Hebrews. So as we get to that point, I'll point out the similarities between what Paul is saying here in the Corinthians and what is said in the book of Hebrews, because there's some real similarities there. So this seems to be responding to a piece of correspondence or some news or whatever that he has received. The other side of that conversation we yet again do not have. So as we go through this, we'll need to sort of guesstimate what the other side of the conversation is so his answers make some kind of sense. The comment was that due to his background, where he had persecuted the church and then become an evangelist, there was probably some suspicion of him as he was traveling around. Certainly that was the case in Damascus. So when he gets knocked off his ass and blinded and everything, and gets led into Damascus, people are really, really reluctant to have anything to do with him. Later on, as his mission grows, it isn't the messianics that have a problem with him. It is the synagogues where he goes, because his practice is when he goes to a new town, he goes to the synagogue, to the Jews first. And he goes to the synagogue, and he presents Yeshua as Messiah, and that very often 
causes the non-Messianic Jews to get really grumpy. Of course, you have the business with the Ephesian silversmiths. I mean, those are pagans, so that doesn't really count. But he gets manhandled a number of times by non-Messianic Jews in their synagogue for coming and talking to them about Yeshua. So when I say he's accident prone, it's obvious I'm being flipped. Every place he goes, he causes problems, riots, and gets beaten, all sorts of stuff. And that seems to be part of what has caused him to write this second letter to the Corinthians, is somebody has planted the thought in the Corinthian church that, you sure this guy's on the up and up? I mean, nobody likes this guy. You sure he's okay? You know, that kind of attitude. So, starting at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And Achaia is another name for what we now know as Greece. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Messiah Yeshua. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is a convoluted sentence. So he's saying God comforts us, and what he expects us to do with the comfort that he gives us is to pass it on and comfort those who are in affliction. That's the sense of the sentence. Verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Messiah's suffering, so through Messiah we are abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. So the idea is Messiah is the comforter for those who are being afflicted, and the thing that the Messiah uses is other believers. So this thing starts right off with talking about being afflicted and comforting those who are afflicted and so forth, which is why I say you don't actually get the idea that this is in response to something until you get down to about chapter 11. When you finally get down toward the end of the letter, you realize that he is responding to someone who is saying that his afflictions are perhaps a sign that he is not an apostle. But you don't get that till you get down to chapter 11. So all of this sort of seems like plop. And what I'm saying is, He's writing to somebody who knows what the letter is to which he is responding. We don't know that. And that's why this whole thing starts off kind of weird. So verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf, for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Probably would be useful to read this with the book of Acts in one hand, because the book of Acts 
tells about all of the things that befall Paul. And I don't remember what city he got stoned in, but he got stoned in one city. And it is my personal opinion, not based on scripture, genealogy, that they in fact killed him. And he was raised from the dead. He isn't saying that he was killed here. He just said in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So certainly if somebody stones you, they're not happy with you. And since stoning was the Hebrew form of capital punishment, crucifixion was not Hebrew, it was Roman and Persian. The idea that a bunch of Jews would stone somebody and then have him get up and walk off is a bit far-fetched. So he may in fact have died and been raised from the dead. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did, partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Yeshua, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. So he's sort of referring back to the part in 1 Corinthians where he said, I wasn't this slick-talking guy that showed up with a three-day pass and a briefcase and baffled you with my great salesmanship. I came to you with demonstrations of power and the Spirit. And I have had a simple message, even though my grammar is convoluted, my message is simple. And one of the themes he's now introducing is that he intends to boast of the converts that he has made. That is the source of his pride. He doesn't have pride in anything else, and there'll be more of that as we go through the letter here. He'll reiterate that theme. But what he's doing is he's reminding the church in the face of somebody saying, gee, this guy's accident from, are you sure he's an apostle? He's referring back and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I was there among you, I communicated the gospel with demonstrations of the power of the Spirit. Remember that as people are talking to you and questioning my credentials. And again, for those of you who remember your Galatians, he spends the first chapter of Galatians explaining what his credentials are and how he became an apostle and the source of his commission. He will do that here also, which is why I think there's a lot of similarity between 2 Corinthians and Galatians, sort of dealing with the same things, which are questions of his ministry and authority and power by people who have followed on behind him. In the case of the Galatians, it was the circumcision party. Don't know who it is here. Verse 15, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. 
for the Son of God, Yeshua Messiah, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. So first off, he's saying, I wanted to come and visit you again so that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, what does that mean? The second experience of grace, I am going to suggest to you, is a refreshing of the power of the Spirit. Because remember, he said back in 1 Corinthians that I didn't come with flash and dash. I came to you with demonstrations of the power of the Spirit. So I would say a second experience of grace is to sort of refresh you in the power of the Spirit and the direct experience of the power of the Spirit. One of the things that Tom has said in the past is one of the things that happens in churches is when a church starts, everybody's really enthusiastic and you have lots of demonstrations of spiritual gifts. You know, people get healed, people talk in tongues, and all sorts of things. And as you get comfortable with each other and you sort of settle into a routine, those things sort of die down, if you will. And so it is not at all unreasonable to believe that the Corinthian church has sort of settled down and gotten comfortable and they aren't having the manifestations of the Spirit that they were having that caused Paul to write 1 Corinthians. So what I'm inferring from verse 15 here is that he sort of wants to come by and tune them up. I don't know that revival is quite the right word. Maybe it is. I've never actually been to a old-fashioned tent revival, but I sort of get the impression that he wants to get the power of the Spirit moving among them again. So then he says, well, what do you think? I can't make up my mind. You know, vacillating back and forth. He said, I assure you that I am not vacillating. And from that, I am assuming that he's been directed to do something else by God. At one point, he said, I really wanted to go up into the Black Sea region and got told by the Spirit, nope, I want you to head west and go through Macedonia. So he does frequently get redirected by the Spirit. And he said, I am not, in fact, vacillating. It is not the case that I can't make up my mind. It is something else came up, which I'm assuming is God. I'm going to pick it back up in verse 18. So as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Yeshua Messiah, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, is not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Messiah, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, given us his spirit, in our hearts as a guarantee. So he says, I'm not double-minded. God is single-minded, and I'm doing what God wants me to do. But the other thing is, in verse 21 and 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Messiah, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That should take you over to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 1. And I'll pick it up in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Messiah 
might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Corinthians, he says, And it is God who establishes us with you and Messiah and has anointed us, and he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice both of these, the spirit is a guarantee. Unless you cross-reference Corinthians with Ephesians, you don't know what it's a guarantee of. Corinthians just says it's a guarantee. Well, a guarantee of what? But if you go over then to Ephesians 1, what it becomes is the guarantee of the inheritance, even though we have not yet acquired possession of it. And the way the the rabbis would say it is it's guarantee of a place in the world to come, which is where your inheritance is. Verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, why was it to spare them that he refrained from coming to Corinth? Remember, he slapped them around in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, which was a year prior, he was slapping them around quite a bit. So what he's saying is, parenthesis, not in the scripture, I decided not to come to you because I didn't want to slap you around, and I wanted to work with you in joy. I get the idea that what he's saying is, I sent you a letter with a whole bunch of corrections, and I wanted you to have time to make those corrections. I didn't want to send you this rebuke letter and then show up and breathe fire on you. Because I want to remember you with joy. I'm I'm suggesting that's probably what he's talking about. Chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? It's sort of like the old thing that you do with your four-year-old. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But it's going to hurt you too. It's the way it works. So what he's saying is, I didn't want to come and have that conversation. And I'm sort of saying in parentheses, I kind of wanted to give the letter time to work. And another painful visit indicates to me that there has been a previous painful visit. Again, don't know that. It's sort of like somebody that you see infrequently. You would really rather not have every time you see them be an unpleasant experience. They may need to be corrected, but if every time you see them, the only thing that happens is you correct them, pretty soon they're not going to want to see you anymore. I'm thinking there's some of that going on. So verse 2 again. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pain, which is you? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is sort of, again, my four-year-old thing. This is going to hurt me more to hurt you. And so what he's saying is the previous letter that I sent you is, was probably more painful for me than it was for you. What I really want to do is rejoice with you all. And then again, parentheses, but you're so screwed up that if I showed up, I wouldn't be able to because 
you need to be corrected. The correction was out of the love he has for them, and, and again, that can be taken to an extreme, obviously, and that you're always correcting them, and there's not a very love show. But correction in things of the spirit is important. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So, if there's pain that has been caused, the pain has been put on you. For such a one, his punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Messiah so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So, let's unpack that. First off, someone has caused them pain, someone in the community, and it isn't him, it isn't Paul that's caused them pain. So what he wants the Corinthians to do is comfort the one who has caused this pain so that that person will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, and he wants them to reaffirm their love for the one who has caused pain. For that's why I wrote that I might test you know whether you're obedient and everything. And then anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Messiah, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. The subtext here then is that it is Satan who has influenced this guy that is causing pain in the community. And rather than punish him, which would give Satan the victory, because if you punish and expel this guy, then it's Satan's victory. And remember, he is not adverse to expelling people, because remember the guy in 1 Corinthians that was fooling around with his father's wife? He said, you need to get him out of here. He's causing too much damage. And so I'm sort of assuming that this person is causing division, maybe by Lashon Hurrah, something like that. And the idea there is if you separate him, what's going to wind up happening is Satan is going to win this one. There's two possibilities of what's going on here. Possibility number one is Satan has influenced this guy to cause problems. Possibility number two is this guy has caused problems just because he's a jerk. And Satan is now taking advantage of that problem, I don't know which it is. It could certainly be either. And what Paul is counseling here is you need to forgive this guy and bring him back into the fold so Satan doesn't win this one. It isn't clear which situation you're dealing with. Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Messiah, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Messiah always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Messiah to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. 
First off, he's mentioning that he was at Troas and didn't hang around because Titus wasn't there. He went on to Macedonia. And then he is saying that as we go through the world, we should be the aroma of Christ. And smell is obviously metaphorical here. It's not literal. People should be able to smell Christ on you or Messiah on you as you go through the world. In other words, it should be obvious to people around you what you believe. And that aroma of Messiah, the obviousness of what you believe, that aroma has two effects depending on the state of the person who smells it. To the one who is a non-believer and not going to become a believer, it is the odor of death. It's a fragrance from death to death. Someone who recognizes that you are a believer and is grumpy about it and is not curious, the trail that you leave through there is one of death because the person is lost and is not going to avail himself of the opportunity. For those who are believers, it is an encouragement. And the way Paul is saying that, it's a fragrance of life to life. Because both of you are in the realm of life and not in the realm of death. And so then this aroma of Messiah that you drag with you as you go through the world becomes an encouragement to those around you. So it either is an encouragement or a condemnation depending on the one who breathes in that aroma. This aroma that he's talking about is much like the water of the red heifer. And if you are clean and you handle it, you become unclean. And if you're unclean and it is sprinkled on you, you become clean. Same water. It's just a question of what state you're in that determines the effect that the water has. Let me back up and pick it up at 14 and we'll get a run at it because it's all one big, long, convoluted thought. So verse 14 again now. But thanks be to God who in Messiah always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Messiah to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we are the aroma of Messiah unto God, both for those who are saved and for those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in the sight. So what he's saying is, I am not a slick preacher. The idea there is, we don't come to you with slick arguments. What we do is we come to you with the power of the Spirit. I'm not going to start chapter 3. Because chapter 3, we're going to talk about the New Covenant. And I will tell you, as you read chapter 3, getting ready for next time, pay really close attention to the tenses of the verbs. The tenses of the verbs are important. And while you're at it, you can then cross that with the end of Hebrews 8. And again, pay special attention to the tenses of the verbs. And I'm specifically thinking of Hebrews 8.13. And remember tonight, we crossed Ephesians 1 with 2 Corinthians 1.21 and 22. That cross-reference is what tells us of what 
the Spirit is a guarantee. And so you need to cross Hebrews 8, starting in verse 13, with the conversation starting in chapter 3 to understand what's going on with the New Covenant.